nuclear Ukraine, and beyond. While fear of a nuclear bomb attack by Russia against Ukraine has ramped up the beginnings of a new ban the bomb movement, especially among millennials new to the subject, there is an even greater nuclear threat in Ukraine. And actually, anywhere there is a nuclear reactor, there is that threat. And there are more than 400 of them on Earth all over the place. But don't take my word for the problems. Listen as a genuine expert on nuclear matters tells you. What we've seen in Ukraine is essentially the weaponization of civil nuclear. Something that I and others have been discussing for many years now. And far from it being a sort of any form of advertising for civil nuclear, it's a clear admission, clear statement of fact that civil nuclear can be a very real and very dangerous target. Well, when Dr. Paul Dorfman, founder of the Nuclear Consulting Group and a trusted European source for media and government, tells you that every nuclear power reactor on the ground is a potential weapon of mass destruction, you start to realize that even if Ukraine does seem to be on the other side of the world from you, it is but one place that there is a giant, uncomfortable seat that, unfortunately, we're all stuck in. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we have a tremendously informative talk with Dr. Paul Dorfman. He is founder of the Nuclear Consulting Group, a member of the Irish Government Environment Protection <coughs> a member of the Irish Government Environment Protection Agency Radiation Protection Advisory Committee, consultant to Greenpeace Environmental Trust, and if I listed all his qualifications, there would be no time for the interview. We'll be discussing EU energy politics, Russian uranium, and the importance of using social media to present and strengthen our talking points. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than got mentioned on the Oscars, let alone got slapped. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 29, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. March 28th was the 43rd anniversary of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. With everything going on in Ukraine, there has not been the necessary time to create a special show for this sad anniversary. So Nuclear Hot Seat is honoring this year's Three Mile Island 43rd anniversary with a link to last year's Three Mile Island special anniversary show for the 42nd year 
since it happened. That's episode number 509, and we will link to it on our website for this episode, Nuclear Hot Seat number 562. Over to Ukraine, where Russia has again shelled the neutron source subcritical nuclear facility in Kharkiv. The Ukrainian State Nuclear Regulatory Inspectorate emphasized that the possibility of new damage to the nuclear installation remains high due to the constant shelling. The agency once again stressed that the neutron source nuclear facility, like any other nuclear installation, is not designed for operation in combat conditions and warned, quote, continued shelling of the site can lead to severe radiation consequences with contamination of nearby areas. The Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Mariano Grossi, said in a statement that the conflict in Ukraine is, quote, putting Ukraine's nuclear power plants and other facilities with radioactive material in unprecedented danger. He went on, we must take urgent action to make sure that they can continue to operate safely and securely and reduce the risk of a nuclear accident that could have a severe health and environmental impact both in Ukraine and beyond, Grossi admitted. There have already been several close calls. A new article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists asks the question, could an attack on Ukrainian nuclear facilities cause a disaster greater than Chernobyl? It responds to its own question, possibly. Russia's military attacks on the Zaporizhia plant raise great concerns about the possibility of nuclear accidents. And to illustrate the possible damage from a military attack on a nuclear power plant, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists simulated and analyzed hypothetical releases from a core meltdown and spent fuel pool fire at one unit, Zaporizhia 1, if an attack by missiles or artillery had disabled cooling systems there. Cooling system vulnerabilities were explored in depth by Arne Gunderson, chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, on episode number 559. We'll have a link up to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists article on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 562. A former chief engineer at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant has condemned as cowardly the International Atomic Energy Agency's refusal to criticize Russian aggression against Ukraine's nuclear sites. Nicholas Steinberg accused the IAEA of having their, quote, tails between their legs and being, quote, afraid to say aloud the names of the criminals who have taken the world hostage. Mr. Steinberg, now 75, came to Chernobyl as chief engineer in May of 1986, one month after the reactor exploded, causing what is listed as the worst nuclear disaster in history. In talking with MIT Technology Review, Chumash stated that fresh fuel is much less dangerous than spent fuel, which has accumulated an enormous amount of fission products, which are very radioactive, such as iodine, cesium, and strontium. If there was any damage to the spent fuel assembly stored at Zaporizhia, it could result in an enormous radiological emergency comparable to what happened in Chernobyl. He said buildings that hold this fuel are designed for what's known as the, quote, maximum projectable accident, which is considered the worst case scenario, but they can't withstand anything beyond that, and none were built to withstand a war zone. There are also around 20,000 spent fuel assemblies stored at the Chernobyl site that still contain a lot of long-lived radionuclides like cesium and strontium. 
These articles and others will be linked on our website. And keeping all that in mind, here's... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None Nuts Out a Week. For three days, April 20th through 22nd, the nuclear industry is holding a symposium on Problems of Modern Nuclear Power, the 16th International Scientific and Technical Conference. And where will this conference on the problems of modern nuclear power take place? In Kharkiv, Ukraine. That's right, Kharkiv, where a nuclear research facility has been shelled not once, but twice. And what are some of the problems of modern nuclear power being addressed? Increased safety and efficiency of nuclear power. Nuclear, radiation, and environmental safety in the handling of radioactive waste and spent nuclear fuel. Public relations and stakeholder engagement in the nuclear industry. All of it so timely, given the nuclear dangers on the ground posed by reactors in Chernobyl, Zaporizhia, and three other nuclear sites in Ukraine. Whoever is behind this and sent out the notification of it in the last week, you indeed are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none nuts out a week. In the U.S., while sanctions have come down targeting Russian oil, coal, and liquefied gas imports, at the behest of the U.S. nuclear industry lobby, the Nuclear Energy Institute, the White House has not sanctioned Russian uranium, which accounts for nearly 50% of the nation's atomic fuel supply. Now, four Republican senators have introduced federal legislation to ban the import of Russian uranium with the condition that we steeply ramp up the nation's domestic uranium mining and production at U.S. taxpayers' expense while expanding violations of sovereign indigenous peoples' rights and states' rights. We'll have more on this story next week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, Nuclear Hot Seat's new website is alive. So many improvements. The pages load faster, the content is way more searchable, And now, we have transcripts. There's a more robust and flexible player for each episode. There's a media section for past content, even a humor page. And what you see is only part of what we get, because we've installed state-of-the-art behind-the-scenes functionality to help the show, its topics, and interviewees be found on Google. It's search engine optimization on steroids. And it's working with page views trending steeply upwards as worries about Russia have the world looking for nuclear information and finding it at Nuclear Hot Seat. But there's a problem. As you might imagine, this website upgrade has been very expensive. A few special donors stepped forward to help with the heavy lifting to get it going, for which I am deeply grateful. But expenses have far outstripped original projections. And from this point on, monthly running costs are double what they have been. My feeling is our movement is crucially important to the world, and Nuclear Hot Seat is an important part of our information flow. So yes, it's worth it to do this, and yes, your help is needed to keep this new improved website up and running. So the time to donate to Nuclear Hot Seat would be right now. It's easy to do. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the smaller but still red donate button. 
You can do this as a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation of as little as $5 a month, the same as a cup of coffee. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee a month so we can help you understand nuclear issues on a weekly basis and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Sometimes you learn about good people because they post it on social media and somebody saw that post and forwarded it to you. I'm grateful to Arnie Gunderson of fairwindsenergy.org because he's the one who turned me on to today's guest. And it all happened because of tweets. Take note, that point will become important. Dr. Paul Dorfman is founder of the Nuclear Consulting Group, a member of the Irish Government Environment Protection Agency Radiation Protection Advisory Committee, consultant to Greenpeace Environmental Trust, and if I listed all his qualifications, there would be no time left for the interview. As you will hear, we discuss EU energy politics, Russian uranium, and the importance of using social media to present and strengthen our talking points to push back against the nuclear industry propaganda machine. More about that later. I spoke with Dr. Paul Dorfman on Thursday, March 24th, 2022. Dr. Paul Dorfman, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background? I started late. I did a degree. Then I went in to do a PhD looking at nuclear risk. At the same time, perhaps uh, interestingly enough, I was appointed a secretary of a full-blooded UK Scientific Advisory Committee examining radiation risks from internal emitter. That's where the debate is the most complex. Uh, Questions of complex radiation biology, complex radiation epidemiology. I'm chair and founder of the Nuclear Consulting Group. I've been asked to advise the French government on the decommissioning of its laid-up nuclear fleet. I am associate fellow at uh, University of Sussex Science Policy Research Unit. I'm committee member of the Irish Government Environment Protection Agency Radiation Protection Advisory Committee, and, you know, a few other things. You founded the Nuclear Consulting Group in 2007. Why did you do that? And what is it and what is it intended to do? Basically, I saw that we all saw that UK was going in the wrong direction, that something was happening. You know, that, you know, that Blair said nuclear was back with a vengeance and, you know, something was going on here. So I thought it important to try to bring people together, uh, act collectively and relatively high level academic people together, because it hasn't necessarily, you know, on a sort of a ad hoc sort of basis, you know, a bit of a chance that it happened really. And actually funded by Quakers, the very limited funding we have came from Quakers from Joseph Rowntree's Charitable Trust. And after that, it kind of grew quite organically. There are no rules, basically, but it does seem important to have a sort of considerable amount of expertise. So it's ended up basically a, a, a virtual institute, a punching well above its weight. How is the group utilized and who utilizes it? Is this the mainstream media, government, academia, all of the above? A significant number of of the people in the group are high-level academics. So, you know, we all have our, you know, day jobs, as it were. 
and we all largely think alike in terms of nuclear. I mean, we all do think alike in terms of nuclear. So that basically it's a very, one could argue, uh, a very significant body of high level academics who not for ideological reasons, but for evidence-based reasons, believe, think, understand that nuclear is not the way forward. There's that tranche to this organization, this virtual institute. Then, of course, there's questions of communication. We've learned in the last year that nuclear have a huge PR push pre and post COP, enormous, gargantuan. And that's, to a certain extent, affected policy. Heaven knows why. Big concentration has been about communication, precisely that communication. Communicating with the press, communication with the media, communication with people, and communication with policy. I'm asked to advise policy and policymakers, not the current government, but certainly those on other front benches in the UK. And I believe the same is true for, for other people in other countries for nuclear consult. So there's policy there's press communication, and there's academic communication. And to a certain extent, it's just a holistic whole, basically. And and really, it's just come about by chance. I'd like to get into the topic that really attracted me through your tweets. You tweeted that even though Russia's war in Ukraine is wrecking havoc on fossil fuel supply chains, uranium deliveries for nuclear power remains untouched, at least for now. To what would you attribute that? Well, the reality is that uh, the Russian nuclear corporation Rosatom has a sister corporation in Kazakhstan. And Rosatom controls this sister corporation. So in other words, Russia controls Kazakhstan, which of course it does. So in real terms, this isn't up for grabs, this is true. In real terms, Russian-controlled uranium comprises 42% of all worldwide global uranium supply to power worldwide nuclear reactors, 42%. It also controls 20% of all uranium feedstock for European reactors. And it also controls the kind of the the, the high-tech stuff that guys like Bill Gates wants to power as well too. America has not banned uh, uranium imports from Russia as we speak. That was my next point. Is it the need, especially in small modular nuclear reactors? I don't call them small modular reactors. They're small. They're in control of the talking points. And that's one of the points I want to get to is how we take control of the communication. But in small modular nuclear reactors, it's my understanding that only Russian uranium can be used for the fuel. This is particularly true with Bill Gates. Do you think that is behind the lack of a ban, sanctions against Russia for nuclear at this time? I think that's both true and not true. There are kind of ways around it. I don't think that the the so-called small modular reactor issue is absolutely pertinent in terms of uranium at the moment, because there is no functioning small modular reactor. Therefore, it doesn't need that fuel. All so-called SMRs are still you know, largely in development and a long, 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 long way from deployment. So no, I don't think that the limitation of uh, uranium from Russia is a small modular reactor uh, phenomena. And there could be potential ways around it. 
in the long term. But then when one talks about small modular actors, you're getting into a whole debate, which I'd be happy to have with you. We'll get into that in a moment. I want to follow the uranium trail for now. Mm -hmm. And the talking points, the misconceptions that have been really surgically implanted by this enormous nuclear industry PR campaign to Mm. manipulate and manage and create consent, even if it would not be there otherwise. In the recent past, the EU has allowed in its taxonomy for green energy, has allowed nuclear to be included in that, which seems to be completely counterintuitive. How did that happen? It was a long and tortuous process and one that I involved in and fought. What happened was that an original scientific working group was set up to discuss the issue, was nuclear renewable or not? How long ago was that? Four years ago, maybe, say, three, four years ago. It was called the WEG, W-E-G, I can't remember the, the name that the acronym stands for. So the original group, which is a you know, high-tech scientific group, came up with saying, no, of course it's not. <laughs> what? <laughs> Excuse me? Of course it's not. So the European Union, being the European Union, then said, ah, well, okay, I know what we'll do is we'll set up another group to see if there, if our original group's findings were correct or not. And <laughs> and because basically underlying this, okay, is obviously the fight between uh, Germany and France. That's what this is all about. With Germany saying, no, it's not. And France saying, yes, it is. And Europe, people in Brussels, the, the bureaucrats in Brussels are saying, well, look, we have to, what are we going to do now? So they came up with this idea of, of finding another group whose acronym I've forgotten, who then reported that, well, it could be, or I don't know, why not, sort of thing. And it gave a whole set of reasons. And if one looks at those reasons, they really don't stand up to sort of scientific interrogation. And at that point, basically, uh, it becomes a political discussion, an irresolvable political discussion between France and Germany. And at which point Europe says, well, look, everybody then expected for there to be kind of not a green, not a red, but an orange sort of light, as it were. Well, you kind of do what you want to do, but we're not really going to say much about it. But actually what happened at the end of the day, unfortunately, is that EU is largely, the the bureaucracy around the EU is largely, largely pro-nuclear, actually, if you look at it in the whole. And there's a lot of influence there. You know, there's a lot of lobbying going on, which I've involved in trying to counter for many, many years. And it's hugely powerful. And that lobbying really sort of took off. And in the end, the discussion ended with, well, okay, you know, let's say that nuclear is sustainable with the caveat that you can somehow get rid of the waste or that you have a mechanism with which you can get rid of the waste by a date, I don't know, 2045 or 2050. I don't know why that date. And also this sort of an idea that you use slightly more sustainable fuel or slightly less dangerous fuel, which again is sort of very anomalous because nobody really understands what this fuel is or could be. So as usual, it's the usual sort of European mess or not European, but EU mess, which leans towards nuclear. You know, Brussels tends to lean towards nuclear. 
and so largely that's what happened. And then, of course, Austria, Luxembourg, Germany, the backing of a whole other sets of nuclear, less positive states that are, oh, come on now, you know, what are you playing at? But in legal terms, nobody has launched a significant legal challenge to that sort of definition. So we're left in this, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> you know, just you know, extraordinary position where for some reason, no one really quite understands why nuclear has been deemed vaguely sustainable. It's been a horrible role model because, of course, the industry mm. here in the, the United States, World Nuclear News and the like, have yeah. lined up in force behind that to just hammer it in. Yeah. Is there any way you can foresee where this determination, this green taxonomy, can be reversed or paused or, as you said, perhaps with a legal challenge? Others and I have really fought this all the way. I mean, this has been a real battle, you know, for some years now. And I think at the moment we're in a, in a position of stasis. But then again, there are words and there are words. One missile that goes astray in, in Ukraine could change everything. So no, I don't think that at the moment, I don't think the taxonomy will change. I think that we're in a position of stasis. And I think that you could argue that it's a battle lost, but it's just something that we have to live with for the time being. Speaking of Ukraine, let's shift this a little bit. The mm. nuclear industry is working very hard to spin the situation there to their advantage, saying, well, the nuclear reactors are still operating and there hasn't been a disaster and everybody's <coughs> downplaying what the risks have been. What's your take on this attempt by them? And what do you see as the genuine risks in Ukraine as regards the nuclear reactors and the Chernobyl site? It's certainly not over. It is a shooting war and it is a human catastrophe. But when they're attacking the largest nuclear plant in all of Europe with six operating reactors, I and many others perhaps didn't sleep for a couple of nights. The idea of munitions firing into a nuclear plant is unthinkable. It's almost as unthinkable as a nuclear proponents spinning this into a good story for pro-nuclear. It is Trumpian in its hypocrisy. This idea that uh, any idea that uh, Ukraine in any way suggests that nuclear is safe is an appalling redaction of truth. And, you know, as I say, the risks are far from over. What we've seen in Ukraine is essentially the weaponization of civil nuclear something that I and others have been discussing for many years now. And far from it being a sort of any form of advertising for civil nuclear, it's a clear admission, clear statement of fact that civil nuclear can be a very real and very dangerous target. You spoke about languaging and getting messaging out. How can we coordinate to get that message out? Because it is clear that any nuclear reactor on the ground is potentially a target in war, for terrorists, for crazy people. What can we do to convince the world not to build any more nukes? 
<laughs> yeah, good question. Um, I think it's important to look at things in the round. First of all, it's important to talk about how things should be before saying, you know, let's stop doing that. It's important to invest in hope, realistic hope, and realistic ways of powering our societies. Now, for example, the International Energy Agency, which is blue-ribboned, you know, everybody believes in the International Energy Agency, say that by 2026, we'll have globally 5,000 gigawatts of new renewable capacity online, which in electrical terms, in forms of electricity, is equivalent to total fossil fuel and nuclear combined. Combined. So there is no question but the renewable evolution is here. I mean, it's not a debate anymore. There is no energy professor, not a nuclear materials professor, but an energy professor who will tell you otherwise. It is renewables. It's a fait accompli. We know this now. In terms of cost, you talk to Lazard, again, gold ribbon, you know, in terms of economics. Solar and wind, about, I don't know, a quarter, a fifth of the cost of nuclear. The numbers, let's give the comparators, say about 20, 30 bucks per megawatt hour for solar and wind, 145, 150 bucks for new nuclear construction. That's the difference. That's actually the difference. These are accepted numbers. These are not pulled out of Greenpeace. This is Lazard. So economically, and also in terms of how quickly it can be done, especially in the context of climate change, the game is over. In real terms, the game is over. So we're left with nuclear PR and uh, nuclear industry lobby and all of the power of nuclear, which is very great, actually. Then that goes into questions of, well, SMRs or this fusion or this and that. That's a long debate, but even that doesn't hack it. The reason why none of this hacks it is the key issue is climate and climate change. Now, we know now that IPCC, which basically reviews older research, saying what we all know, because we've all been looking at the fundamental research for the last few years, basically, we need to change and change quickly. There is no way on earth that nuclear will help with that. It cannot even replace itself by, say, 2050, you know, when all of these aging reactors come offline. There is absolutely no way. There's not the money, not the capacity, not the person power, not the will uh, to do so. It takes between 10 and 15 years for a nuclear reactor to come online these days. It is just too slow. And the same is true with SMRs. Now, currently, what does nuclear do? It does about, I don't know, between 3 and 4% of global energy, which is, excuse me, but that's not, I mean, you know, for all the, the fuss that nuclear make about things, it's not, it's just not that much. So that if you were to then to try to, to make that more, in other words, basically to try to replace that, which you have to do. I mean, for example, a quarter of all France's nuclear is now offline as we speak. 15 reactors are offline due to safety and security problems because of aging, basically. So you cannot replace the amount of reactors that we have even now by 2050. There's, there's simply not the capacity to do that. So to cut to the chase, the renewable evolution is here. It costs a fifth of the price. It can be deployed incredibly quickly. And when one thinks about energy, one needs to think about energy in the round. We've been talking about supply, which is what nuclear is, basically, just supplying stuff. When you talk about energy, electricity, you talk about supply, about transmission, 
about use. So it's about demand side management, energy efficiency, energy management as well too. And of course, in terms of renewables, one thinks about storage, one thinks about backup, one thinks about load follow, load balancing, interconnectors and the rest of it. So yes, we can basically, yes, we can do the renewable evolution and no, we do not need nuclear to do that, which is basically uh, too costly, too dangerous, and too late to help us with our climate problems. And there's one issue really that nuclear needs to understand very, very clearly, is that nuclear will be perhaps one of the first and most problematic victims to climate change. Nuclear needs to be beside large bodies of water to get the cooling and also to discharge. Now that's either by the coast, inland by river, or in large lakes, large bodies of water. Now we know what's gonna happen with the, with the coast, the sea's going to rise, we know what's going to happen with the rivers. The rivers are going to alternate between inundation and low flow and heating, which means that inland rivers uh, may not be able to get cooling and then, importantly, may not be able to discharge because the river flow is too hot and too low. And the same is true for lakes. But within the next two decades, two decades, okay, it's looking very much like we think that sea level will be rise stepwise. We think it'll be stepwise. But the, the key issue for nuclear is storm surge. We're under certain atmospheric conditions, which combined with high tides, as we've seen all across the globe, the sea just rises and just moves inland. And a number of current nuclear stations are just a few meters above sea level. And it's very likely that within two decades, current nuclear capacity will be at significant risk from storm surge tidal ingress, nuclear islanding, basically flooding. Nuclear islanding, that's not a phrase that I have heard. And yeah. it's certainly both graphic and I think important because yeah. languaging and communication and especially the harnessing of social media and the power that it represents, yeah. I think are key to us turning things around. I need to congratulate you on your Twitter presence. It was Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy who started forwarding your tweets to me, and then I subscribed. And it seems that you are on at least once, if not on average, I would say three times a day with new updated points. Is this something that is new to the work that you are doing, or has this been part of the plan all the way through? No, this is something that's new to the work I'm doing, and I'm hoping to gain a, a sort of a base, as it were. It's something that I just thought, well, you know, this seems to be very, very interesting. My initial sort of approach was always to go to the broadsheet press and to the media. What I found, and what a lot of people have found in the last year, and it's actually quite disturbing, is that whereas before, if there was some key issue uh, about nuclear, the BBC would turn to me and say, well, you know, come along, have a chat. The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, the German press, whatever it was, you know, say, well, OK, you know, you have a go, Forbes or whatever, you know, what you have to say. Well, in the last year, the nuclear PR has been so great. And I'm not saying it's a question of blacklisting, but there's been something very, very strange that's been going on. That one has had basically less presence in the media. Now, that's beginning to change now. OK, that, that's beginning to change. However, it has been worrying. And in response to that, I turned to social media in order to communicate, to talk with people. 
We will link to your Twitter handle on the website. And I encourage anybody hearing this to sign up because these are some of the most informative, short burst talking point tweets, information flow that I have encountered. And it's encouraging because you seem to have a handle on how to phrase things so that in short bursts, we get the truth of it. I saw on the website for Mm -hmm. NCG, and we will link to that as well, that Mm -hmm. you have a list from the British Academy of 127 experts with huge credentials who are available to comment knowledgeably both on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That was a specific list, but Mm -hmm. also beyond that to other nuclear issues as well. How did that come about? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm an academic and all of a sudden British Academy just put me on that list, basically. So basically in their in their in their judgment, they think it's basically a good idea. It's just one of these academic things. I'm considered to be a safe pair of hands. I'm not off the wall. What I say can be fact-checked. I'm a kosher academic, so I'm a safe pair of hands. We will link to that list as well, because anyone in the media who is covering Ukraine or beyond that who are looking for nuclear experts should have access to that list from the British Academy, but also the list of people who you have who are part of the nuclear consulting group. Where do you go from here? You're going to continue, of course, with Twitter and with the communicating and making yourself available. But my question is, how do we who oppose nuclear for all the same reasons that are out there, instead of being reactive to the assaults and the push of the nuclear industry, how do we become active as opposed to reactive? Precisely. And, And that's exactly it. And right from the start, I decided not to be reactive. I mean, right from the start. It's always a question about taking the agenda forward because one can argue endlessly with trolls or I mean, one can argue endlessly. The whole point is actually to make a point and to push it through. There's press, there's media, there's policy, and there's people. And none of these are greater or lesser than anybody else. It's almost like an iceberg. You know, what you see on the top or a swan, you know, what you see on the top is not what's going on underneath. And things change. And when things change, we're left with the idea, well, what on earth, what held that up? What held that straw man of nuclear up when it, you know, rather like, you know, I don't know, apartheid or the the Berlin Wall, you know, why did that thing actually exist? And when it actually comes down, you say, well, there was actually very little that held it up. And there was this huge mass underneath that supported the reality of the situation. And in a sense, I think that's how people are around nuclear, uh, largely. There's this significant sort of top of the iceberg of a nuclear PR, a huge impact in terms of policy and lots of money. But beneath that is the bedrock, the reality of, of what's going on, of what, what's actually happening. And what's happening is the renewable evolution is here. It's far quicker, far cheaper, far more effective. And nuclear is really just an absolute sideshow. I mean, a a very, very, very real sideshow. The problem with that sideshow is that it's costing us. It's costing us in time and in money. We don't have the time because of climate, and we certainly don't have the money because we need to put our money into what will work. So it's a question of actually prioritizing our choices 
and making those choices clear to, to press, to media, to policy, and most importantly, to people. And this one does in a sort of a buckshot way, in any way that one can, and in any way that seems reasonable and viable. And I think that people get the truth of, of where one is, basically. I think that people understand people who, who try to uh, deal with facts. So in, in that sense, that's the general approach that I and, and many others take. Has there been any coordination in getting the message out with those who are in the renewables industry, solar, wind, geothermal, any of the others, any of those companies? People tend to be in their own sort of cadres. And also they sort of, they fight their own fights, basically. And people are sort of fighting their own corners, which is you know, absolutely understandable. The truth is really that the world has changed in the last eight, nine years or so. I mean, before the nuclear proponents would always say, oh, renewables, forget it, you know, kind of joke. Now, across the board, across the board, nuclear proponents say, well, oh, renewables, that's the way forward, but nuclear can act as an adjunct to renewables. That's the, that's the sole argument. That's the only argument left, actually. So things have changed enormously in the last eight nine years, 10 years or so, solar and wind costs have decreased, I don't know, 70% or something. Nuclear costs have increased. So solar and and wind costs exponentially decreasing. Uh, Nuclear costs exponentially increasing. So the argument is over. The market will not touch nuclear. There's no way that the market the finance market will touch nuclear. The only way that you can build nuclear is with massive, and I do mean massive, public subsidy. So basically, the public purse would have to stump up huge amounts of money. And as we've seen in summer and Vogel and the rest of it, huge losses, especially in terms of the early cost recovery regimes. So the reality is, I mean, the argument is over, actually. I mean, it really is over. All that's left is this sort of skeleton, which is sort of pushing out this PR, which is still very, very dangerous, actually, you know, and therefore worth engaging with. And it has a lot of resource, it has a lot of power, and it has a lot of influence. And one worries about this, actually, in a democratic sense. There seems to be a democratic deficit in terms of nuclear and nuclear promotes, particularly in in the US, actually. So long story short, everyone's fighting their corners. The renewable evolution is here for evidence-based reasons. Nuclear says, well, maybe it can back up so-called intermittent renewables. The reality is, of course, nuclear is intermittent. A quarter of the French nuclear fleet is offline as we speak. Also, nuclear is very bad at load follow. In other words, backing up the renewable evolution, because nuclear, you switch nuclear on and it runs. It doesn't power up and power down well at all. It doesn't load follow. So the last thing that you want to back up so-called intermittent renewables is nuclear. Nuclear can't do that, doesn't do that. So even its last argument is a kind of a flawed argument as well too. So in a sense, what one finds is one just churns out the same kind of arguments. These are just basic facts, basically. I mean, these are not really up for discussion. This is just how things are. And just sort of wait for reality to set in. If we were to create our own echo chamber, 
our own set of talking points that would go out in a coordinated way, because that's what nuclear does. They set the agenda and it gets picked up all over the place exactly. and they're talking at each other. Exactly. I know Nuclear Hot Seat has listeners. It's been downloaded in 124 countries. There are people who listen to this show religiously around the world, and we've all got access to social media. So if there were to be some kind of coordinated, here's the talking point of the week, here's the talking point of the day that we could then just upload, maybe a series of them that we could upload on a schedule, because this is this is the way Fox built its quote unquote news thing. Roger Ailes gave the talking point. If we were to do this, how might it be coordinated? How might your organization be involved? Certainly Nuclear Hot Seat would be of service to this. How might we get our own echo chamber with talking points, coordinated talking points off the ground? That's a very interesting thought. It's certainly worth considering. It's a very, very interesting thought. It's not something that because Nuclear Consult was something that sort of organically grew, it's not something that I directed or invented. It just happened, basically. And then I'd sort of worked with it. I've always sort of tried to work within my own limits, but then always very happy to push those limits. I think that as Obama found, uh, key to everything is organization and collective action. So I think that if there is any route to uh, collective organization, thought through collective organization with a certain amount of, of resourcing, And also an element of presentation. And as you say, week by week, ongoing work. Because basically, it comes down to work at the end of the day. It it, it just does. It just comes down to getting things done. Then, yes, that sounds like a very interesting idea and one that potentially needs to be thought about. I will continue to put that thought out in as many places as I possibly can and hopefully include you in the process. Please do. Your communication skills are brilliant. You have these little talking points. I have little slips of paper where I've printed out what your tweets are over the course of a week. And if we could have those to draw upon, then we at least have automatic ammunition that people can use in fighting back against what nuclear does with all of its millions and millions and millions we can potentially do because of the power of social media and of the individual. I think this is very important to understand that the rules of the game has changed. And this is borne out by sort of, you know, complex uh, science and technology studies, academic, sociological scientific knowledge, you know, whole loads of of academic work that the, the, the scales are changing. You're absolutely right in terms of social media and in terms of output and the rest of it. So, yes, this does provide an opportunity to certainly match and even outmatch pro-nuclear output on this level, without any doubt. There's no question about that. Absolutely agree. That will be pursued. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to speak about at this time? One of the many things that got me into this was questions about radiation risk. 
and as secretary, you know, you see the scientific advisory committees about COVID and the rest of it, and oh, you know, all these scientists. Well, you know, I was one of them in terms of radiation risk. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, the fact is actually that when one really gets into the science, I mean, really, really, really deeply into the science about radiation risk, about internal radiation risk, there is huge levels of uncertainty. Very, very great, very, very significant levels of uncertainty. And there's a thing that has always really, really bothered me. And that's a fact. You can't really dispute it. I mean, this is just a fact in terms of radiation biology, when one talks about stuff like genomic instability theory or bystander theory and all kinds of stuff. What always I find really, really curious is that fundamentally, and in terms of fundamental science, and this is actually true in terms of fundamental science, there's a huge amount of complexity and uncertainty. Basically, you don't really know, actually. The numbers really could be out in terms of safety. It could be out by 10. It could be out by 100. There's no real way of knowing, actually. And that's actually true. That's the fundamental scientific advice. I mean, that really is in terms of complex internal radiation. What happens when a bit of radiation gets inside you? Really and truly, it could be not such a good idea. And that goes on to questions of not simply about talking about gross cancers and leukemias, but you're talking about uh, immune deficiency, heart problems, whole host of things that are really, really difficult to pin down epidemiologically. What then happens is, for some reason, this complex reality is then shortcut, oversimplified, if you like, to make a rule to get to regulation. So complex scientific reality is somehow translated into regulatory certainty. So basically, potential risk, real risk, is translated into potential certainty in order to continue for nuclear to function. Because nuclear, in order to function, must put out radioactive pollution. It just must do that. So there's a strange paradox it's not like a Russian doll where all things sort of fit together. It's more like a Chinese whisper when the original message gets corrupted on the way to the listener. There's a strange thing that happens that complex scientific uncertainty, indeterminacy, and risk, potential risk, is somehow translated into regulatory safety. In other words, it's, we probably think it's more or less okay. And that's curious. That's very, very odd. Dr. Paul Dorfman, this has been an illuminating discussion with you. I look forward to having others in the future and especially picking up on the possibility of a communications network echo chamber on our own behalf. Mm. Until we next speak, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Dr. Paul Dorfman of the Nuclear Consulting Group We'll have a link up to it, nuclearconsult.com. It will be on the website. We'll also have a link to his Twitter post, which is a bit more elaborate. They'll be up at nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 562. And we'll also have a downloadable PDF of the British Academy's list of 127 nuclear and other experts who can comment knowledgeably on all aspects of what is happening in Ukraine. If you are a reporter, you must have this resource in your wheelhouse, especially the nuclear people. As for the use of Twitter that we discussed, there's more of this to be reported as part of 
Activist, activist, shout out, shout out, shout out. It's always great when an interview pushes out beyond the bounds of what we spoke about and into a next set of actions. So, okay, it's become really clear that we who oppose nuclear need our own echo chamber to build awareness of honest nuclear talking points. This is to contradict the propaganda focused group, big money-backed pro-nuclear manipulations that take the form of massive public relations campaigns. And you should know that the field of public relations was first labeled and promoted by Edward Bernays, who was a nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he considered PR to be the manufacture of consent. That's what the nuclear industry has been doing with its PR campaigns, manufacturing consent, And so what we need to do is have our own public relations campaign to move that in the opposite direction and manufacture non-consent for all things nuclear. That's actually not even a manipulation. It's just allowing people to access their own common sense in the absence of talking points that are trying to push them away from their own common sense. We're still in the early stages But what's being explored and worked on is a program that will allow you, the listeners, to participate in a really important PR drive on our own behalf. The goal is to have what's called an editorial calendar for a full year. This is something that has been used traditionally in all news media. It's a list of the anniversaries that can be used as the basis for stories, tweets, and posts. And we would also provide tweet-length talking points that could be used on Twitter, Facebook, email, any place you like, to reverse the surgically implanted self-serving lies of the nuclear industry. In less than a week, We have an ever-increasing list of activist groups and individuals who are getting involved. We intend to come up with a series of boilerplate tweet-length posts that can be used anytime, anywhere. Twitter, Facebook, other social media, email. Get it tattooed on your forearm. The intent being that we have these that are good at any time, anywhere, so all you have to do is copy and paste into your social media accounts. Easy peasy. We would also have some that were geared to the anniversaries and ongoing stories that we are all concerned about, as well as some that we can jump into when there's a hot story. Then it's up to you, the listeners, and your social media networks. And please, don't give me that groan, grimace, and eye roll about social media. It is a tool that we must not only use, but master if we're going to make progress, and it's going to be made as easy as possible for you to participate. The load is light. Just copy and paste one or two of the pre-written talking points once or twice a week. That's it. Sound like it's doable? I know you can do it. This is a smart audience. You know how to do these things. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is still in very early days, less than a week in. We will have details available when it's time for this program to go live, and any updates that might be applicable that you would find interesting will be reported on this show. In the meantime, feel free to do this on your own. Come up with your own posts for Twitter, and then copy them over onto Facebook. The goal being that the language repeats. 
from one platform to another. And if yours are as good as I suspect they will be, we might end up nabbing some of yours and putting them on the list. The goal is to counter the pro-nuclear big bucks echo chamber of false information with our own echo chamber of accurate information that opposes nuclear. And as you heard from today's guest, it is people power that will make the difference. And let's face it, there are more of us than there are of them. More details on this as they become available. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 29, 2022. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. It's the same mechanism we had on the old website. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and your email address, and every week you will have an email delivered with a link to that week's show and a brief rundown of some of the information that's in it. As a bonus when you sign up, you will get a free chapter from my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. It costs you nothing, and it's one of the great deals available online. Now, more audience participation. If you know of a story lead, a hot tip, or have a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to our brand new website. I never get tired of saying that. The new website, nuclearhotseat.com, and look for our now modest-sized red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. That means you can quote me, or cite me, or my guests, as long as you credit Nuclear Hot Seat and my guests' organizations. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, every nuclear reactor is a dirty bomb on the ground and holds the potential for disaster, which is why we have to get rid of them all. There you go. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.